Father, um, we just sang about the wondrous mystery of Christ. As we come this morning to your word and, and we see that, we see the proclamation of the gospel, the ministry of Paul, his desire that the mystery of scripture be revealed, which is Christ in us, that, that we ourselves would find the same kind of joy and satisfaction and, and wonder and awe in knowing that you saw fit to save people like us. And so we pray that you would be exalted this morning, Jesus, through the word, and that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us as we examine your word together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning, church. For those of you who are new or or visiting, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the elders here at C3. This morning, we're going to be continuing in our series through the book of Colossians. So if you've got your Bible with you this morning, please open up to Colossians chapter 1. That's where we'll be today. It's also page 983 on the Bibles there in your row if you want to grab one of those. Uh, We're a church who preaches through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We believe that's important for us as a church. And so if you find yourself this morning going, man, I don't have a Bible that that I like to read at home or that's easy for me to understand, that Bible on your road, just take it today as our gift to you. We want you to know the Word. We want you to be in the Word. And so if you need a Bible, if you know someone who needs a Bible, go ahead and take that. It's not stealing if the guy who's preaching tells you that it's not stealing, right? No, that's our gift to you. Um, And so like, uh, like Luke mentioned, Weston this past week was in uh, Colossians chapter 1, continued our series in Colossians chapter 1, and he, uh, he preached through arguably one of the most significant and important passages that we have in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae that we even have in our New Testament about Jesus. We saw that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, meaning that if you've seen Jesus, if you've seen him proclaimed on the pages of Scripture, if you know him, then you've seen God, you know God, he's not a mystery, he's not this, this divine being that's out there that, that can't be known. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, and so he's the image of the invisible God. We see that Jesus creates and holds all things together, so there's nothing that happens outside of his providential and purposeful will, and so we can take comfort in that. There's no surprises to Jesus He doesn't wring his hands over the chaos in this world or the chaos in our lives. All things are being held together presently and in the future and beyond that by Jesus and the power of his word. There's no surprises to him. He knows beginning from end. He works all things together according to the purpose of his will. And Jesus, being fully God, is solely able to, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus is desiring to take broken people like you and me, alienated from himself because of our sin and rescue and redeem us so that we would be presented holy and blameless before the Father. So that's what we covered this past week, and and that's really good news, right? That's really good news. I don't know about you, but, but I need, when I wake up in the morning, to know that Jesus is on the throne, that all things are being handled by him. And I need to know that positionally before the Father, he's glad and happy to redeem even me, present me as holy and blameless before the Father. And so this week, we're going to continue where we built upon this past week, 
starting in chapter 1, verse 24. We'll go through 2, 5 this morning. But before we do that, I want to share a story with you that I read uh, recently about a young woman named Jacqueline who, like many in our area, just graduated high school at the end of May. Uh, But Jacqueline is going to be the first person in her family, first generation in her family uh, to go to college. So I read this story, and, and basically Jacqueline's grandparents uh, fled Vietnam in the, the 1970s as, as the war continued to ravage the country. And so her grandparents um, came across the Pacific. They ended up in Los Angeles and had absolutely nothing to their name other than the, the clothes on their back and, and a few supplies. They knew a few English words, and they moved into an apartment with some other refugee families from Vietnam, and they worked. They worked menial jobs, hard labor, just trying to make ends meet. It was a very difficult life for her grandparents. Both of Jacqueline's parents were born to refugee families who had come over from Vietnam, and life for her parents was not a lot better. Her dad dropped out of high school when he was 14. By the time that her mother was 11 years old, Uh, She was responsible for raising her three younger siblings at home while her mother, who was recently widowed, worked outside of the house to provide for their family. And so Jacqueline's parents, once they met and and were married and and began a life together, wanted to provide for their family something that they had never had. They wanted to provide a different opportunity, a different life for their children than they had been afforded. And so they both worked multiple jobs early on in Jacqueline's life to get enough money to move into an area where she could attend a good school. By the time that they were in school, Jacqueline and her younger brother, her parents took turns working weekend jobs so that one of them could be home in the evening to be with the kids, to to help them in their studies and help them learn and help them excel in school. And so the result is that Jacqueline is going to college this fall on a scholarship the first in her family to ever do so. And when asked about what going to college meant for her, she said, you know, my parents strive to give me and my brother an opportunity at a better life than they had. They showed me what it looks like to work hard for those that you love, even if it costs you. Me going to college is a sign that my parents believed in my success and were willing to sacrifice to make it happen. I just hope to make them proud. Um, Many of us have heard stories like Jacqueline's over the years. In fact, maybe it's, it's your story. Maybe as you think back to your parents or maybe your grandparents, there's a story that you've seen and been a part of where hardship was endured and suffering was endured and, and struggle and, and toil took place just to try to provide a better opportunity, a different opportunity for your family. But that story is not just something that we can appreciate in Jacqueline's life or that we may understand to be true of of ourselves or someone around us. It's also the story that we're going to encounter this morning in Colossians chapter 1. You see, what we're going to see this morning as we read this text is that the Apostle Paul, who we know is in prison in Rome at the time of writing this, is going to say that he has struggled and he's labored and he's toiled on behalf of the church that other people might have an opportunity He's going to say, I've struggled and toiled that you might have an opportunity for a life and a future that's better than anything else you could have had. But this life and future is not about school. It's not about money. 
It's not about career. It's not about privilege. It's about knowing Jesus. So this morning we'll see Paul describe this effort and the struggle that he has. And ultimately as we see all of this unfold, we'll see how that applies to us as well. So take a look with me this morning at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 24. We're going to read through this whole passage. We'll end in chapter 2, verse 5, and then we'll go back through and take a look at it this morning. Paul says this. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. First thing I want to point out this morning is if we go back and look at verse 24, it's kind of a weird phrase. I don't know if you picked up on that as we were reading through that, but on first pass, Paul says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church. And on first pass, you, you read that, and, and it, it would seem to suggest that maybe there's something that Christ didn't do or that could have been done or should have done but didn't. And I want to clarify for us this morning that that's not the case, that there's nothing that Christ should have done or could have done for the sake of the church that he did not do or is not presently doing. And that's where context, right, is so helpful for us as we read through the scriptures because if you go back and you look at the passage that we looked at this past week, we're going to see that Jesus is preeminent in all things and we're going to see that Paul uses the word all over seven times to refer to Christ and his work. And so there's nothing lacking in Christ's work for us, in his ability for us, in his position toward us. What Paul is saying here is what we see in several other places in scripture, which is that the sufferings that are endured as believers in Christ, the sufferings that we endure as Christians for the sake of the gospel are ultimately persecutions of Christ himself. What do I mean by that? Paul says in, in Philippians chapter one that Christ is granted to us not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. That the sufferings we endure are, are not solely for us, but we suffer for his sake. That when you're persecuted for the name of Christ, that he stands with you enduring the suffering as well. We see on the, the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine, you remember Paul is is walking along, he's on his way to Damascus to go and persecute Christians, and he's blinded by the Lord. And what does Jesus say to him? He doesn't say, hey, Paul, why are you hurting my people? Why are you going after people who bear my name? What does he say? He says, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And so there's other places in Scripture where we can see this as well. But there's a very real sense in which the present, ongoing, and future persecution or struggle or difficulty endured by followers of Jesus is ultimately an ongoing attack of Christ himself. Afflictions that he has yet to endure but then endures alongside of us as we go out faithfully and do the work of ministry and proclaim the name of Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is looking at the Colossians. He's looking at this church, this people that he loves. And he says, when I think about you, and I think about what I've endured, and I think about the the difficulty and the trials, I, I rejoice in my sufferings because the pain and the difficulty that I've endured is what Jesus endured and will continue to endure through and alongside me and his people as the gospel is proclaimed in the dark places and the strongholds of sin. He says, I rejoice that I get to suffer for the name of Jesus. I rejoice that he joins me in the suffering. I rejoice that Jesus continues to endure for his body, that he hasn't left us on our own. And so we'll see Paul go on to say in in this passage in a few different places, verse 24 and 29 and verse one, I believe we've got those up on the screen for you. We see these different places where Paul is gonna say, I rejoice in my sufferings. I toil, I struggle with all of his energy. I want you to know what a great struggle I have for you. And if you know the life of Paul, you know that Paul struggled mightily for the sake of the church. In uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, one of the famous passages, Paul talking about his ministry, he's gonna say the different ordeals that he's gone through, that he's had imprisonments and countless beatings, often near death, five times he said, I received 40 lashes, less one at the hands of the Jews. He'll say, I was stoned three times. I was beaten with rods, shipwrecked on frequent journeys, facing dangers from robbers and rivers and Gentiles and Jews and wilderness and false apostles without sleep, hungry, thirsty, cold, more. This was, this was the life of Paul wanting to make Jesus known. And so he says, I've struggled for you. I've toiled for you, I have done all of these things, but when I think about what I've endured, when I think about what I've endured, that Jesus might be made known to you, I rejoice, even at the cost of those things. Why, what was his motivation in doing so? It's what we see in verses 26 and 27. And again, in uh, chapter two, verse two, Paul's gonna say, I've done these things so that the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, that God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's done these things that their hearts may be encouraged, chapter two, verse two, being knit together in love, so that, that those who hear the message of the gospel would reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ. And in knowing Christ, verse 28, grow, mature in him. That's why he suffered. That's why he sacrificed and toiled because the opportunity to see others enjoy life in Jesus, the opportunity to see others experience the richness and the fullness and joy of knowing Jesus so eclipsed his afflictions that when he thought about the difficulty he endured, he couldn't help but to rejoice. That was his mission. That was his calling. 
You might say this morning, well, that's great, Chris, but I can't remember the last time that I was shipwrecked for the gospel. I can't remember the last time I was beaten for the gospel. I'm not out there pounding the pavement the way that Paul is, but that's not the point. See, that was Paul's mission. And we are also, as believers, right, called to share the gospel with other people. But what I want to point out to us this morning as a church, the encouragement for us in that is this, that faithfulness to the mission God has given you will often be marked with difficulty and struggle. Is that not what Paul is saying here? He's saying, look, I've been faithful. I've done what the Lord has called me to do. I've done the things that, that Jesus has put me on mission to do. And guess what? It hasn't been easy. There's been struggle, there's been toil, but I've remained faithful that I might see the word of God go forth. What do I mean by that? I read a quote uh, many years ago from an American soldier who served in World War II and was one of the soldiers who stormed the beaches of Normandy. And he said, speaking later on in his life, he said, many applaud me for the valor and courage of a few brief and calamitous months of my life. Yet I wish to be known for the long battle of faithfulness to Jesus, which has wrought in me more death and longing of life than the perils of war. What is his point in saying that? His point in saying that is that there is a day-to-day battle, day-to-day struggle of waking up and dying to yourself and killing the flesh and pursuing holiness, which has far greater reward and requires much greater endurance. The mission that Paul had to plant churches and take the gospel into unknown areas was the call that God had placed upon his life in the same passage I referenced earlier, Acts chapter nine. But think about the mission that God has given you. As we sit here this morning, we think about the mission that God has given you. Some of you are married. Some of you are parents. Some of you are grandparents. Students who are in here. You've got a mission field at your school. You have parents, you have siblings. All of us, if we are in Christ, have been called to put to death the deeds of the flesh, which are the sinful things that we're inclined to do, to put on the spirit. Think about those relationships. Think about the work that you do outside the home, the work you do inside the home. Think about your personal life. In all of those things, we've been called to exalt Christ and minister to one another, and to think about, and to do what is good, and right, and holy, and Christ-exalting. And I don't know about you this morning, but I know for me personally, as I think about those things, think about the mission that God has given me as a husband, and as a daddy, as an employee, as an elder, as a neighbor, as a brother. I think about the mission in those things. Those are hard. That's hard work. It's hard work to wake up in the morning and not be self-centered and to prioritize my needs above the needs of my wife and my children. It's hard for me to not get sucked into this belief that my greatest contribution on earth is the work product I give from eight to five or the salary I bring home. It is hard for me in the struggle against my flesh to not notice what everyone else has, their vacations, their cars, their homes, their clothes, their gadgets. Students, you know that battle too, don't you? You notice what other people have. And to long to be content in Jesus versus content in this world. And that's not made easy when you have a spouse who sins against you. 
That's not easy when you have children who sin against you. And it's not easy when you've got parents who sin against you or siblings who sin against you and make it difficult and hard. And it's not easy when we wake up tired and exhausted and we want to rest and we want to just put our feet up and take our foot off the gas pedal for just a day to instead say, no, Jesus, today as always, in my life, in my body, in every relationship I have, I want you to be magnified. I will not abandon the mission of making Jesus known and seeing him at work in my life simply because it's hard. Because this life is hard, isn't it? Do you struggle too? Is that a toil for you? Are there not days where it would just be a lot easier to pack it in and say, you know what? This thing would be so much easier if I could just get angry or vengeful or lazy or apathetic or calloused. Be so much easier if instead of trying to kill the deeds of the flesh, I could just give in and do what feels good and right and easy. But we don't do that, do we, church? Because when we have, we've tasted and seen that life outside of Jesus and that the deeds of the flesh never satisfy or give us what they promise they will. It never results in the life that we think it will. It never results in the joy that we think it will have for us. It is void and empty. And so we return to Christ. We say, to you I'll be faithful. To you I will do the things that are hard, struggle with my flesh, will fight the battle to be forgiving. I'll fight the battle not to punt on my responsibilities, to demonstrate Jesus to my kids, to my spouse because I'm tired. Fight the battle against apathy and cynicism. Fight the battle to avoid or neglect being in the word and being in prayer because it's easier to turn on the TV and stream something at the end of the day or surf my phone, be on social media. Fight against the tendency that I feel in my bones to be angry when I'm sinned against, frustrated with people in my home, siblings, parents, spouse, coworkers at work who sin against me, no shortage of things, church, that make our God-given mission to trust and obey Jesus and to love those around us less difficult. So why do we do it then? For the same reason that Paul did in Colossians chapter one. Because of Christ. Because of Christ that we might know him better, that we might trust him deeper, that we might experience the riches of his grace and the, the beauty of his power at work in us. And that those around us might see that as well and rejoice and give praise to the Father because of it. Because life in him is worth it. And so we do what, what Paul says in, in chapter 1 verse 29. He says, for this end I toil and I struggle with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. 
See, the beauty of all of this church is that you are not asked to do this on your own. Jesus empowers those who trust him to live for him. Jesus empowers us, even in the most difficult of circumstances, to cling fast to him and to trust him and to walk with him faithfully. Do you trust that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? As you think about your life, you think about the mission that God's given you, do you trust that? I mean, Paul's writing to a church here, right, who's struggling mightily. We talked about that at the beginning of this book as we were going through it. They're, they're trying to be faithful to Jesus in this little town of Colossae that they live in. There's people all around them who are saying, that's not true. Yeah, Jesus is good, but you gotta believe this also. They're saying it's not enough for you to, to follow Jesus. You've got to do all these other things as well. You're not wise enough. You're not smart enough. You're foolish for believing these things. There's pressures around them from a false and godless culture. And the encouragement and the example that Paul gives them this morning is, look, we are all in a struggle. There's toil to be experienced. Faithfulness to Jesus does not look like easy street. And yet, don't escape the struggle and give up. Rejoice in the suffering and the toil. Bank on the strength that Jesus powerfully works in you as you trust him and then keep pressing forward. Because in the long battle of faithfulness and obedience, there is joy, there's life, there's Christ. And that's not something we just experience as we trust God, but just like Paul endured difficulty and toil in his mission so that others would see and enjoy Christ, so also our lives are a testimony to our spouses, our coworkers, our parents, our children, friends of Christ, friends at work who don't know Christ. So faithfulness to the mission God has given us will be marked many times with difficulty and struggle. So then what do we do with that? What do we do with that this morning? What do we do with the fact that we've seen Paul talk about his ministry and we know it's not easy and we survey our own lives and we see the mission that God has called us to and recognize that it's not always easy, but it's worth it? What do we do with that? What are we aiming for? Again, the reason Paul struggled and toiled was, as we saw in verse 27 in chapter two, verse two, to make the mystery of God known, which is Christ in us. And he calls it a mystery because even though the expectation in the Old Testament was that Messiah would come and bring salvation, there was no awareness of when exactly that would be. So at this moment in time, if you transport yourself back 2,000 years, all of these promises, all the mysteries of the revelation of God's plan to save his people are unfolding before your eyes. And if you're a Gentile, like many of these people, most of these people in Colossae are, the fact that God's plan was not just to save the Jews, but to create a new covenant people of Jew and Gentile and to reign and rule over these people through the indwelling of his spirit, it's incredible news. And so all these things that were alluded to, that were whispered about in the Old Testament, the mystery of God are being fleshed out and on full display as Jesus is saving and redeeming a people for himself. But the hope here, the aim here, is not just that the mystery of God would be made known. Do you see that here? The, the, the aim is not just that the gospel would be proclaimed, but look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that what? 
What is the end goal of the proclamation of Jesus? What is the aim of of warning and proclaiming and teaching people, not just about the gospel, but about Jesus and who he is and how to follow him and how to trust him? It's that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And if you jump down to chapter 2, verse 2, Paul's desire is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. To what? To reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What does all of that mean? We were out of town last week on a family trip, and I don't know how, how your family does family trips, but before we leave, we tend to make sure, we call it eating down the fridge, which I know my wife hates. Um, but we just make sure we're not leaving a bunch of leftovers, we're not leaving a bunch of produce. We eat down the fridge before we go on a trip. And usually, if I'm thinking proactively enough, I've already thought about, okay, what groceries do we need to get when we get back and write a grocery list out and curbside from the cars, we're driving home so that when we get back to the house, it's like, okay, we've got food, we can eat again, that's great. But we got back from this trip and we were just trying to get out the door. We'd gone on the, the canoe trip, the daddy-daughter canoe trip, which was amazing, and got back from that and had three days of just blitzing the work week, and then we turned around and we left again. And so one morning, uh, one of my daughters makes herself a bowl of cereal and you know, gets it, sits at the table and then says, uh, Dad, this cereal tastes kind of funny, like kind of sour. And immediately I'm like, uh, that's not the cereal, that is the milk the milk probably went bad. And so I go and take a look at the milk in the fridge, and you know, sure enough, I look at the gallon of milk, and the use-by date is like 10 days prior, which in our house, there's an understanding look. That's a suggestion, okay? It's a suggestion. I'm trying to feed four children, so if it's a couple days later, just sniff it. If you don't notice anything funny, it's fine. Don't worry about it, right? Uh, but in this particular instance, uh, 10 days prior, uh, we were past the expiration, for sure. So, um, you know, and so it's, it's not a perfect science, right? But, but the date on a milk container is there for a reason, right? Because after a certain amount of time, the substance within that bottle is going to change into something far less pleasant than what it previously was. Compare that to, example, a wine bottle, right? There's a date on a wine bottle, a vintage but that's there to let you know how long it's been getting better and better and better if it's a decent bottle of wine as it has been sitting in that bottle. It's just going to age and get better and better and better. Two sets of dates, used by date on your milk, vintage on a wine bottle, two very different outcomes. Why do I give you that example? Well, what we see here in Colossians chapter 1 and 2 is that having begun with the gospel of Christ, what Paul says is, look, my ministry has been to proclaim this gospel to you. My ministry has been to struggle and toil that you would know Jesus, that the gospel would be made known. But I've done all of that, not just so that you would know Jesus, but that you would also age well. I've proclaimed Jesus to you with the hope that you would age well. To have the substance of Christ in us grow in maturity so that we would experience the full riches of the treasure of wisdom and knowledge found 
in Christ. That's what Paul longed to see happen for the Colossians. And that's what the Lord wants for us as well, that they, that we would be a people who wake up each day and drink deeply from the word of God and cling fast to Jesus and trust him and listen to him and follow his direction and his leading over our lives, that we would practice what we see in his word and that as the years turn over, unlike a gallon of milk in the fridge, that as years turn over, the substance within would age and become better and better and better because it is being continually refined to be more like Christ. Paul says this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, so we don't lose heart. You know this verse, though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are not seen but unseen. Paul understood this. He encouraged the Colossians toward this. And church, this morning we need to hear that as well. Not that the gospel is insufficient, but that it was the starting place. That there's more of Christ to know than simply that he saves. That there is a renewal and a maturation and a growing up in Jesus that produces sweet and abundant fruit that is pleasant to those who get to experience it. That as we drink deeply from the well of life, that as we encounter and know Jesus, that we become more and more like him. And that in being more and more like him, we understand and love him deeper. And the world around us sees the person of Jesus lived out through us. That's the aim for our life as believers, to be presented mature in Christ, to grow to fuller and fuller assurance that Jesus is sufficient, that in Jesus is all wisdom, and that in Jesus is all knowledge and all answers. Jesus is our sustainer. That all the treasures and riches of this world that, that could be offered pale in comparison to the riches of his glorious grace and the riches of knowing him better. That's what Paul is talking about here that we would be people who would experience Jesus like that. Why does all of that matter? Because as Paul will say in chapter two, verse four, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What does he mean by that? Listen, church, this tiny, this tiny group of believers in Colossae, while thousands of miles away from us and thousands of years before us, still experienced a dynamic that is very much alive and well today, which is this. The deceitfulness and the pull of this world will always try to convince you that there is life to be found outside of Jesus. Always will. The pull and the deceitfulness of this world will always try to convince you that there is life to be found outside of Jesus. That everything we read about maturing and, and growth and finding Jesus to be of infinite worth and, and value is, is optional, that you can put Jesus in a Sunday morning box, that you can put Jesus in your social group box and say, I want to be socially connected to Jesus, but I don't want my life to be aligned with him. I don't want him to lead and guide and direct me. I don't want him to inform everything that I do. 
I can be a good person. I can be a moral person. I can vote the right way, but I can look to the world around me and find answers and hope for how to live and how to think and what to value and what to do with my time, and I will be just fine. And the message from God's word to us this morning is don't settle for that. Struggle and toil to make Jesus fully and truly known for you and others. Yes, the gospel is sufficient, but it's also the starting place. Yes, we must know and trust in him, but fight the long battle of faithfulness and experience the riches found in Jesus that you can only know when he's carried you through miscarriage or infidelity or death of a loved one or deep sorrow or crippling anxiety or job loss. Experience the the Jesus and the riches of knowing him that can be found when you survey your life and you examine the goodness that you have in children or your home or your job or faithful friends or the fact that he rescued you from sin that caused great destruction and difficulty in your life and in the lives of others and go, I want to know that Jesus more. I can only know him when I've trusted him through difficult things. I can only really know and experience the riches of his glory when I've been able to survey my life and see how much goodness and joy I have because he has blessed me so greatly. I want to know that Jesus more and more and more so that when I stand on the edges of Jordan, we sang about in that song, the saints and the angels beside, we boast Christ because he has been our boast for as long as we have been breathing. And everything we have, we owe to him. The message from scripture this morning is know that Jesus. Know Jesus in that way. And if you're here this morning and you're like, man, that sounds great, but I don't know Jesus like that. The great news this morning is that you can. That's why as a church we get together and we preach the word. That's why we encourage you to worship and to study it on your own. That's why we do community groups and do life together. And we encourage our students to go off to San Antonio for a week and serve Jesus side by side and get together on Sunday evenings and study and learn. That's why we want to know Jesus better and grow in maturity in him because he's worth it. And if you don't know him like that, the good news this morning is that you can. Everything that we've read in the book of Colossians so far has been specifically and, and designed exclusively for people like you and me who might think, God, I've got to clean myself up before I can go to God. I've got to, I've got to stop sinning. I've got, to be, I've got to be better. I've got to be more holy in order to be acceptable to God. But the truth is that none of us could ever work hard enough to become good enough to overcome the consequences of our sin. But as we saw in Colossians chapter 1, Verse 21 and 22, even though we were once alienated, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death us in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus rescues us from our sin when we place our faith in him. He qualifies us. He makes us blameless. He's the one who forgives us. And the mystery of Christ now revealed is that he then lives in us by his spirit that we would be empowered to know him in the kind of way we're talking about this morning and that in knowing him, we would experience the riches of the glory 
of his grace. The Bible says if we trust in the fact that Jesus died in our place for our sins and that God rose him from the dead, we will be saved. And if you don't know that truth this morning, if you don't know that truth this morning, come find me after the service. I'd be happy to talk to you, help you understand that, pray with you. And if you're here this morning and you do know that truth, the encouragement for us today is to joyfully continue to know God better, to experience Jesus, to grow in maturity in him, to be faithful in the ministry that he's given us, trusting him along the way, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me, that we would reach the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He is our aim. He is our hope. Maturity in him is joy for us. And we will never be able to aim higher or be more satisfied in this world than to simply be in Christ. So let's pray.